When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Bullying behavior, Beijing's response to President Trump's signing of a bill backing Hong Kong's protesters. Human error, Chinese social media app TikTok apologizes for suspending a user who criticized the government. And is it for reals? The real, real luxury consignment platform defends itself against counterfeit claims. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. once again to First Move and happy Thanksgiving to those of you who celebrate today's U.S. holiday. Plenty to be grateful for on Wall Street, at least with all three major U.S. markets closing in record territory yesterday, rounding off a record-topping November. In fact, I have to say, though, a far less festive feel over in Europe. I think trade war worries rather than the holiday spirit is the name of the game there. As you can see, we're under pressure by some three-tenths of one percent across the board. I'll explain why shortly, but now... And for context, remember, European stocks are still trading around those four-year highs. And there are some reasons for cheer in the data today, too, which I want to point out. In France, consumer confidence numbers for October coming in at the highest level since President Macron was elected back in June of 2017. So worth noting that, I think, in light of recent protests. In the UK, too, the pound getting a boost overnight thanks to a poll suggesting the Conservative party may get a majority in the election on December 12th. It's now back in the red, however, so we're reversing gears. It's just one poll and we will discuss that too. Now, is the light at the end of the three-year Brexit tunnel of uncertainty? We shall be asking the question for now, though. Take a look at the weakness that we've seen across the Asia session. The real global sentiment driver overnight brings us back to the U.S.-China relations and the decision by President Trump to sign legislation that expresses support for the Hong Kong protesters over Beijing. This is, as I mentioned, uncanny timing here, of course, with U.S. stock markets shut today. Investors around the world asking, of course, what that means for the phase one trade deal. Let's get to the drivers because that's why we're starting. China threatening firm countermeasures after the United States passed a law backing anti-government protesters in Hong Kong. In response, Beijing's foreign affairs ministry has issued a blistering statement accusing the U.S. of bullying behavior. Christina Rileshi joins us now from New York. Christina, just talk us through the details of this and what the implications of this signature may mean for Hong Kong and, of course, more broadly, these trade talks. Well, Julia, President Trump, as you said, signing the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, and that'll complicate the Chinese trade war, the U.S.-China trade war. The new act could lead to sanctions on Chinese officials for cracking down on protesters, and it requires the U.S. to confirm Hong Kong's special uh, freedoms are being maintained by Beijing. Otherwise, the U.S. could withdraw the city's special status, and that would be a massive blow to its economy. The Hong Kong's government blasts 
listed the bill as unnecessary and unwarranted. Uh, the Chinese have summoned the U.S. ambassador to China, Terry Branstad, to protest the bill. Branstad is the former governor of Ohio, so he's well aware of how people at home are feeling the effects of the trade war. And though this definitely raises the tension between the U.S. and China, it's really unclear how it impacts the talks at this point. The, the, the Chinese have threatened countermeasures, but they've threatened countermeasures before without following through. And it's really hard for the Chinese to enact those countermeasures without hurting their economy as well. In addition to that, the U.S. government and the president in particular has a lot of leeway in the way that he uh, executes this bill, how he enforces this bill. And he's sort of signaled to China that he's not going to take a hard stance with China, perhaps not enforcing the travel ban or the sanctions on particular people. Um, so we're going to have to see how this plays out. But the two sides are still talking. The talks are ongoing. It doesn't seem it seems like this bill is largely symbolic at this point. Yeah, and this is such a great point, Christina, because we see bipartisan support for putting pressure on China over this particular issue, never mind uh, the trading a relationship and the protections of things like intellectual property theft. But the idea that he can sign this and then not enforce it, very, very important for us to realise here. And for many reasons, and we talk this through time and time again, both sides here, arguably on an economic basis, need to get some kind of an agreement here to at least suspend tariffs, if not remove them. And we have to bring it back to the economics here. Absolutely. And I think that that's in, parts of the bill can be are at the president's um, sort of uh, whether whether the president wants to enforce them or not. There are other parts of this, of course, that really upset the Chinese because it's symbolically telling the protesters, hey, we're on your side. And as you know, if it comes down to sovereignty or economics, the Chinese will put sovereignty ahead of economics many times. We've seen them do this over their history. Uh, I think it's really important, though, to your point that uh, Trump is sending a subtle signal to Xi Jinping that uh, he wants these talks to, to continue and they're moving forward towards a quote-unquote phase one trade deal, which everybody is still questioning what that really means, yeah. Julia. Just another lever here, a pressure point. Christina Leshi, happy Thanksgiving and thank you for joining you us. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next driver. The Chinese social media app TikTok has apologized for removing a viral video that criticized China. The company says it's restored the user's account and blamed human error for the decision. Haddis Gold joins us on this story. Haddis, I think you just need to give us a bit of background here about yeah. what exactly happened, what this apparent suspension of the account involved and why, and where we are now today. Julia, this has been a really interesting story, really interesting last 24 hours. What happened was a 17-year-old young American was filming what looked like any typical makeup tutorial video on TikTok. But as she was curling her eyelashes, she then slyly told her viewers to pick up their phones and search the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims in China. Of course, there's uh, the U.S. and other Western nations say that these Uyghur Muslims are being sent to what are apparently internment camps. China denies this, says that they are voluntary training camps. 
camps. But this young woman says that then after that video posted, it was removed and she lost access to her account. Now, yesterday, TikTok said that the reason that this young girl lost access to her account was because a previous video she had made on a different account had showed an image of Osama bin Laden, which is, they said, against their policy of showing any sort of imagery related to terrorism. Now, the young girl said that that uh, short image of Osama bin Laden was part of a clear parody, clear satire, and that she thought that she lost access to her account because of her commentary on the Uyghur Muslims and China. Of course, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. There's lots of fog of suspicion around this company and their connection to the Chinese government. U.S. lawmakers have asked for a national security assessment into the company. But yesterday, TikTok was saying, no, 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 it wasn't connected to the Uyghur comments. This was connected to Osama bin Laden. But today, or actually in the last few hours, TikTok has come forward with a new timeline. And they say that actually, yes, that specific video, the viral makeup tips video turned into Chinese commentary, was actually taken down for 50 minutes. And they say it was due to human moderation error. And they are also now apologizing to this user. I'll read part of this apology. They say, we would like to apologize to the user for the error on our part this morning. Our moderation approach of banning devices associated with a banned account is designed to protect against the spread of coordinated malicious behavior. And it's clear that this is not the intent here. Now, TikTok is better known for its funny memes, its dance videos, lip sync videos. It's not known as the home for, let's say, political discussion like we might see on Twitter and Facebook. But it just goes to show you that all social media companies, especially a social media or tech company connected to China, is going to have a lot of attention on it, a lot of eyes on it, and how it deals with these sort of moderation policies. Now, one question that we don't have answered yet is what caused that human moderator to take down that post? We don't have that question answered yet, but I'm sure we'll be asking TikTok that as the days go by. And this is something that they say themselves, they are continuing to evolve on how they moderate this type of discussion. These days, I'm not sure that any sort of social media platform can ever only be just for fun and memes. Yeah, it's such a great point, Halas. And to be fair to TikTok, they did say, look, they'd never been asked by the Chinese government to censor, censor content. Yes. And even if they were, they wouldn't do it. Um, yes, exactly. That could yeah, also the- have implications too. Yes. Yeah, the head of TikTok recently actually sat down for a big New York Times interview, uh, one of the first times that he did this, Alex Zhu, and he was adamant, saying that if he was asked directly by Chinese leadership whether he would take anything down or share data, he said he would refuse and that he would not do so. Yeah, fascinating. Halas Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, next driver, the final fortnight now in the UK election campaign, and it's a fight to the finish for Boris Johnson's Conservatives, with the main opposition coming from Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Well, a new YouGov forecast is saying the Conservatives look to have the election in the bag. Nina Dos Santos joins us now with all the details. Nina, just explain to us what this forecast from YouGov told us, because it suggested a majority of seats here going to the Conservative Party two weeks out. That's right. Well, what they've done here, Julia, is that they've surveyed about 100,000 people across the country over the last seven days, a feat that they plan to replicate next week again. And they've deduced that if the election were to be held today, well, the Conservatives would come home with a majority of 68 seats in Parliament, gaining 359, according to their predictions, versus 211 from Labour. The S&P, Scottish National Party, would get 43, and the Lib Dems would get 13. Now, what's significant about this is that YouGov was the only poll, really, that 
They managed to get it right in 2017 when Theresa May called that snap election. She didn't really have to call at the time because at that time the polls showed that she would come back with a thumping majority. Obviously, that was a spectacular political miscalculation. She lost her majority and that just hampered her premiership ever since. So Boris Johnson probably looking like he's feeling quite comfortable with these kind of numbers coming in two weeks ahead of the general election. However, I should also point out that YouGov's figures do say that when it comes to 30 of these seats that they reckon are going to go conservative, the margin of error is about 5%. And they say that if the conservatives were to lose their 11-point lead over their nearest rival, the Labour Party, and that were to be narrowed down to about 7%, well, then they wouldn't have a majority in Parliament and they could be back in the same situation as we have today. Yeah, it's still incredibly tight. Nina Dos Santos, thank you so much for joining us on that story. And we'll be talking about this more later on in the show. For now, these are the stories making headlines around the world. North Korea reportedly fired two projectiles earlier on Thursday. That's according to the South Korean military. The South believes they were fired from what is called a super large caliber multi multiple rocket launcher. U.S. and South Korean intelligence are now analyzing that data. Iraqi authorities, meanwhile, cracking down on anti-government demonstrations after protesters torched the Iranian consulate in Najaf Wednesday night. At least 13 people were killed and scores wounded when security forces opened fire on protesters earlier today. Iran is demanding that the Iraqi government respond firmly, quote, to the attack on its consulate. The president of the European Central Bank, the ECB, reportedly wants to prioritise the fight against climate change in policymaking. The Financial Times reports Christine Lagarde is pushing for the topic to be examined as part of a strategic review of the bank's purpose. The head of Germany's central bank has warned he's against redirecting ECB monetary policy to tackle climate change. All right, coming up on First Move, it's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, but with some pretty windy weather, I can tell you here in New York, what kind of parade will we get? Find out next. Plus, CNN's exclusive interview with the founder of Huawei a year after the company's CFO, his daughter, of course, was arrested. That's coming up. Stay with CNN. First move with a look at what's going on for uh, stock markets over in Europe. They're in the red today as investors eye developments in U.S.-China relations. This after President Trump signed into law two bills backing Hong Kong protesters against mainland China and, of course, raising questions about what this perhaps means for those negotiations over trade. Mike Bell, global market strategist for JP Morgan Asset Management, joins us now. Mike, great to have you with us on the show. Always a difficult question here when we're talking about U.S.-China relations, but we can't separate the politics here. How do you keep your eye on the broader point here? And do we believe that whatever happens, the economics trumps politics here and we get some kind of phase one deal in the not too distant future? I think, as you say, unfortunately, at the moment, the politics and the economics are fundamentally intertwined. So uh, the way we're approaching that, though, is to focus on the economic data to see whether we get a turning point in the data rather than listen to all the noise because it changes so much the headlines around trade as we're seeing today uh, relative to the relatively optimistic market expectations that have been built in towards the trade deal so far this year. Uh, so our focus is, for example, on the conference board's leading economic indicator. That's been decent 
accelerating for the last 14 months. Uh, before we can feel confident that we're going to re-accelerate out of this slowdown, we would want to see that pick up. You know, your big question that you're asking for 2020 is, is whether companies start to react to some of the pressures that we've seen, whether that's a tight labor market here in the United States and rising wages, or particularly in the manufacturing sector, the, the pressures that the broader trade concerns and that global slowdown has created, and ultimately decide perhaps to, to cut jobs. Talk us through your thinking on, on, in this regard. Yeah, so I think the market has been very focused on the trade war. But I like to think, what would the world look like if it wasn't for the trade war, if the trade war had never happened? I think this far into an economic expansion, there would still be some concerns around the outlook, centered on the fact that wages are accelerating now that we've got very low unemployment. And so what you've seen is that sales growth has slowed as the fiscal stimulus faded. Uh, and that means that sales growth is running at only about 4% rather than 10%. And wages are growing at about 3.5%. And hence, profit growth has slowed to around zero. And for mid and small cap companies, is actually contracting. So the key question now for 2020 is, are companies going to respond to that pressure on profits by cutting jobs. And to get some insight into that, we're looking, for example, at job openings and job vacancies. And what you see is that the year-on-year -year change in job vacancies in the US, Japan, Germany, and the UK has started to contract. So I think it's a bit early to say that we're definitely out of the woods for the economy yet. You know, the counter to that, though, and it's been a, the case throughout this year, the strength of the consumer actually has been a support to economies. It's been a support to markets, too. And if you're talking about tight labor markets and price pressures as far as wages are concerned, doesn't that also have a, a positive consumption impact, which counters the argument, too? Yeah, so that's the upside risk. If we see uh, that wage growth turning into pricing power for corporates so that they feel that they can put prices up to offset the costs that are rising because their wage bills are going up uh, and it helps boost sales, then that could help cause a re-acceleration in the economy and we'd be able to breathe a sigh of relief. But at the moment, what you see when you look, for example, at the NFIB small business survey is that companies are feeling that cost pressure, but they don't feel they're able to pass uh, price increases on to consumers yet, despite high consumer confidence. And what's interesting in looking at consumer confidence is that even though consumers are very confident at the moment, uh, they aren't getting any more confident than they were 12 months ago. In fact, the year-on-year -year change in consumer confidence has started to decline. Uh, so that's a potential warning signal that we're monitoring closely as well. Yeah, that's such a great point, actually. What does this mean for investing as we head into 2020? Do you have to be slightly more defensive? Because to your point, we have seen that reflected in the earnings, but investors have been kind of glass half full this year and been far more optimistic, perhaps. And you know, we have a question now about valuations here, too, given the fundamentals. Yeah, I think given that earnings growth has basically been flat, you've seen broadly zero earnings growth over the last 12 months, all of the rally we've seen in equities has come from valuation expansion. So I think that caps the degree of upside that you're likely to see on equities over the coming year. Um, it doesn't mean that equities have to struggle. It just means that the upside is somewhat capped. Uh, and with that in mind, we think that until there's clearer sign of a reacceleration in the economic data so that we can say with more confidence that this slowdown isn't going to become a stall for the economy, uh, that it makes sense to have a bit more of a defensive equity allocation. So, for example, 
focusing on cheaper stocks over the more expensive growth stocks uh, and on large cap stocks over the smaller companies because those smaller companies are really feeling the margin pressure the most. Makes sense. And earmuffs as far as uh, political noise is concerned. Focus on the fundamentals. Mike Bell, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. Great to have you with us and uh, have a great day ahead. All right. Now it's time for our second annual Turkey Day feature, Stocks to be Thankful for. Now, last year at Thanksgiving, things weren't tasting so well or so good on Wall Street. Just take a listen. The past few weeks on Wall Street have been like a particularly dry piece of turkey for investors. Yeah, juicier turkey this year. Perhaps what a difference a year makes. Stocks are trading at record highs here in the United States and we have an entire plate of juicy returns to bring to you now. Investors who have Apple in their portfolio should be in fine holiday spirit today. Apple is far and away the biggest Dow gainer of 2019, so far up a stunning 69%. Microsoft, though, not far behind, up almost 50% since January. What about Visa and United Technologies, both up almost 40% too. Now, if we look beyond the Dow and you have even more delicious returns, chipmaker Advanced Micro Devices up 113% year to date. Chip equipment maker Applied Materials up almost 80%. And guys, this is despite the trade tensions and the concerns focus that we've seen on this sector. Now, unlike last year, every sector, in fact, in the S&P 500 is in positive territory year to date, led by a stunning 42% rise in nothing other than the technology sector. But what about old school industrials? Well, they're also doing well, up 27% financial services, real estate not far behind too. In fact, the big S&P laggard this year, yeah, you probably guessed it, energy. And that's actually still up some 3% year to date. Wowzers. Well, can we hold on to it? Because you remember this time last year and then that December sell-off that we saw. So uh, fingers crossed, Santa rally. Now, it wouldn't be Thanksgiving here in the United States without the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade through the streets of Manhattan. But on a windy day, it was touch and go whether the famous balloons would fly. Now, things kicked off around 25 minutes ago. Miguel Marquez is down among the crowds for us. Right, Miguel, great to have you with us. I don't see any balloons behind you, but I do believe they are flying today. They are flying. I just got mugged by a, a bunch of clowns. There's a thousand clowns here, so they, they come by and confetti you. So I just got that. This is one of the longest balloons, oh. the Power Ranger coming down here. And while they are pretty good when they are behind the buildings, when they hit these intersections, we're at 72nd Street here, they really blow over to the side. The one that just came by almost blew into the, uh, into the people on the other side of the street there. So their handlers, you can see how the handlers are all the way on the left side of the uh, the balloons they're really trying to keep them from going into the trees uh, and into the light poles on the other side of the street they have people actually carrying them from below because they're so low right now they can't get them up very high in the air all that said people are extraordinarily happy to be here happy thanksgiving family these guys are out here every how many years now seven years seven years dressed as turkeys every one of them a turkey and this guy actually recycled confetti from new year's eve so a real new yorker
Parker. Well done, you. Uh, but tons of people here. They've been lining up since about 4 o'clock this morning. They actually have a police sergeant with every single one of those 16 big balloons to test the wind as they come through intersections like this so they can see exactly what happens here. Let's give watch this. This is this is the longest balloon uh, that is out here today. And you can see as it enters the intersection here at 72nd Street, the way it starts to blow over to the right uh, uh, of the street. And the handlers here are having a tough time keeping keeping track of it. These guys are basically carrying it, uh, trying to keep it. Happy Thanksgiving. Good luck to you. I hope you guys make it all the way down to 34th Street. This is going to be some serious work that these guys are going to put in. Look at them struggling to keep these things in check. And, I mean, literally, the balloon is scraping along the ground. Good luck to you. <laughs> these guys are going to get a workout today like they have never seen, Julia. Last year they were low. This year they are scraping along the road. Absolutely. Happy Thanksgiving to, to you and happy Thanksgiving to them. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Oh, my goodness, you're right. They're definitely not going to need an arm workout later on, quite frankly. I thought you were yeah, going to get exactly. taken out by a Power Rangers fist there. <laughs> wow. The dangers of Thanksgiving. I know. Wow, you're in the midst of Crazy. it there. Stay safe. <laughs> Great to have you with us. Miguel Marquez there. Happy Thanksgiving to you. All right. Happy Thanksgiving. Still to come on First Move and an exclusive interview with CNN. Huawei's founder and CEO discusses relations with the United States and weighs in on the protests in Hong Kong and the implications. Stay with us. First move. Now, this weekend marks one year since Canadian authorities arrested Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Chinese tech giant Huawei. U.S. prosecutors are accusing Meng, the daughter of Huawei's founder and CEO, of violating Washington's sanctions against Iran. Now, he sat down with our Christy Lustat for an exclusive interview. And I'm grateful to say Christy joins us live now from Hong Kong. Great to have you with us on the show and incredible timing getting this interview at this moment. We forget it's been a year since uh, this took happened amid the broader headlines with the with the trade negotiations. What did he have to say about it and where things stand right now? Yeah, well, in regards to that, it was very interesting because before Donald Trump actually signed into law that piece of legislation, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, I asked the Huawei chief executive what he would think about that, if that would somehow jeopardize his business. And he said, well, because the fact that we are on the U.S. trade blacklist, we have no business in the United States, it wouldn't affect us at all. Now, also making the headlines is this one-year anniversary that's coming up, December the 1, um, that is this Sunday, will mark one year since the daughter of Ren Zhengfei, the Huawei chief, also the Huawei CFO, was arrested in Canada at the request of the United States and thus becoming arguably the face of the U.S.-China trade war and tech war. Now, she remains under house arrest in Vancouver. She is now awaiting a hearing that will take place in Vancouver to take place in January, where she will learn whether or not she will be extradited to the United States. Um, both Meng Wanzhou as well as Huawei face some very serious charges in the United States, including um, bank fraud, uh, trade secrets theft, as well as violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. Both Meng Wanzhou and Huawei deny those charges. Um, but as this sensitive anniversary comes up, uh, Huawei gave CNN exclusive access to Ren Zhengfei, Meng Wanzhou his father, again, the chief executive and founder of Huawei. And I got a chance to ask him about the conditions that Meng Wanzhou is under in her life under house arrest and also what kind of personal impact it's had on him as a father. Take a listen.
Huawei founder and CEO Ren Zhengfei prefers to keep the focus on products, but we waded into politics at Huawei headquarters in Shenzhen days before U.S. President Donald Trump signed the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act into law, complicating the trade war and the future of Huawei. Over the weekend, there was an overwhelming victory for pro-democracy parties in Hong Kong. How do you view that? They shouldn't focus on a political terminology, debating whether or not there is democracy. How Hong Kong can prosper is the most important issue that its current and future leaders should consider. If all people can become rich and prosperous, isn't that what we wish for? Do you feel some sympathy for Hong Kong protesters for, for what they're fighting for? No, I don't, because I strongly oppose violence. I wouldn't say whether I have sympathy towards them or not. I simply have not looked into what they are demanding. If we're talking about peaceful actions, those are permitted within the framework of one country, two systems. It doesn't matter how I feel about it, but I think extreme actions like vandalism are unacceptable. Now, U.S. lawmakers are fighting for Hong Kong. They're getting directly involved in the situation that must be complicating the trade war, the tech war, and also the future of Huawei in the United States. What's your thinking about that? I have noticed recent comments by Marco Rubio. China's foreign ministry has protested against the U.S. interference in Hong Kong's internal affairs. Rubio said that the U.S. legislation's interference in Hong Kong is an internal affair for the U.S. I think this is a big joke. How can Rubio be a senator? But if President Trump signs the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act into law... Surely that will affect the trade war and that will affect Huawei's future, right? No, it won't, because we would give up the U.S. market entirely. How would it affect us? We don't have plans to go to the U.S. and serve the American people because the American people don't need us, right? Then we won't serve them. So is Huawei given up on the U.S. market entirely? Well, as of now, we can't say that we have completely given up on the U.S. market. We must still fight for our rights, which have been promised by the U.S. Constitution. However, the American people reject our services. For example, AT&T or Verizon, they don't purchase our products. Then, we have no choice but not to serve the American people. Even though our intentions are amiable, the U.S. is a society of freedom. It should uphold the spirit of openness and embrace all kinds of powers in the world. However, now that the U.S. is betraying such principles, will it still be the leader of the world in the future? And that was a Huawei chief executive and founder, Ren Zhengfei, speaking to me earlier from Shenzhen. And Julia, I have to say that, unfortunately, that was not the right clip that I was hoping to share with you just then. If our viewers are interested in finding out his thoughts about the conditions of Meng Wanzhou's house arrest, about also um, the Huawei founders thinking about the two Canadians who are currently detained still in China, you can find that at CNNBusiness.com. But back to the trade war, back to what we learned about Ren Zhengfei. As you know, Huawei is under immense pressure on multiple fronts yeah. from the United States. We also learned last week that the FCC says it calls Huawei a security threat, that it made this move against it, barring rural carriers from accessing funds to be able to buy networking equipment from Huawei. And when you ask Ren Jingfei about it, he says 
it's their loss. You know, it's it's sad, he says, that rural customers in the United States will have poor network coverage because of politics. Back to you. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if there is a broader carve-out for Huawei as part of a phase one trade deal, perhaps, or, or beyond. And to your point, whichever part of the interview, both sections are really fantastic, and we'll tweet them out later as well <laughs> for our viewers. So thank you so much for joining us on that great interview. Christy Lust out thank there. You. Thank you. All right, one of my favorite stories of the day, a legendary player of the strategy game Go says he's been forced into early retirement by artificial intelligence. South Korean Go master Lee Sedol is quitting at age 36, saying AI is, quote, unbeatable. This comes three years after he lost a closely watched series against Google's AlphaGo. Down with the robots. What a disaster. Now, coming up on First Move, an early Christmas present for the UK's Conservative Party, perhaps as a new prediction says they'll have the best election results in decades. But can we trust it? We'll have all the details next. Welcome back to First Move. T-minus two weeks until the UK goes to the polls as the election campaign enters the final straight. A new forecast is saying the Conservative Party is on course to win. YouGov predicting that Prime Minister Boris Johnson's party will have a 68-seat majority in Parliament. Now, this isn't certain, but YouGov did get it right back in 2017 when they predicted a hung Parliament. Let's bring in now Chris Curtis. He's the political research manager at YouGov, and he joins us from London. Chris, great to have you with us. Just talk us through your survey here and what the margin of error is as well as we sit to Two weeks out. I can't hear any sound. Oh, Chris, can you hear me? Chris, can you hear me? Sorry, I, I can't hear you at all. Oh dear. I think we are having some sound issues. We shall work on that. For now, though, Brexit is just one of the major issues for businesses that trade across Europe. Joe Kaiser is the CEO of German engineering giant Siemens, and he met with CNN's Eleni Jokos to discuss the likely impact of Brexit, as well as trade wars and the importance of Africa. Listen in. I'm very convinced that uh, we need to be committed and actionable to give the African continent a chance. And this is not just uh, because of value, or because of, uh, you know, believing that everybody on the world should have some positive impact. No, look, it's also about interest. And the interest is we need to give the African continent a perspective for a good future. Otherwise, everybody wants to move to someplace else. So we can actually tackle the refugee topic and the migration topic as, as, as its roots, firstly. Um, secondly... If you look at what happens today, there is the, the U.S.-Chinese, what we call trade war, at face value. But likely that trade war is nothing but the power struggle on who is becoming number one and number two in the world. So you see more and more bilateral agreements between like the United States and China or others. And if you look at Africa, that's the only one remaining continent which has not yet taken sides. How has the global trade war impacted Siemens. There is no winners of a trade war because all the economies are either slowing down or actually, you know, going close to recession with Europe being affected the most because they are in the middle of the two big systems. 
So uh, that's a, that's a, um, a cumbersome matter that um, people are not able to talk to each other more and talk too much about each other. However, um, as far as Siemens is concerned, we've been localizing long time ago. So we have 60,000 people in the United States, 45,000 in China. So we are actually a local player. And that helps us today to get out of the crossfire, so to speak, between, uh, between the two systems. But um, I do hope that, uh, that those two great nations uh, come to terms and provide a fair and level playing field. Have you also completely um, priced in the consequences of Brexit? I believe, honestly, in the meantime, I believe the debate about the Brexit is, in terms of economic terms is uh, very overrated. Companies for a long time have been looking into their resource allocation. They have been slowing down the allocation to, to the UK. So everybody is prepared to see what the final outcome will be. Uh, you know, it's a great country, but uh, the world is bigger than, than one country somewhere in Europe. All right, let's continue this discussion. Chris Curtis, political research manager at YouGov, joins us from London. Chris, I'm just going to check that you can hear me this time. I can hear you perfectly. Hooray, we have success. Okay, fantastic. Talk me through your predictions, because we were just mentioning, or I was mentioning before then, that it does seem like the Conservative Party are heading towards a significant lead here in the election in two weeks' time. Talk us through your results and what the margin of error is here too. Well, the first thing to know is that it's not really a prediction. We're not got a crystal ball here. We're not doing anything magic. What we're doing is taking the best of data that we have available on where the public currently stands. We're um, plugging that into our MRP model, the model which accurately forecasts the result of the last election, and trying to get the best picture we can of where things currently stand. Now, the reason I emphasise that point, of course, is because we still have two weeks left of this campaign. The model's currently saying that, yeah, it's very, very likely we'll get a Conservative majority. It's likely we'll get quite a large Conservative majority. But if things change over the next two weeks, of course, uh, you know, we, we, could, we could be heading to a hung parliament instead. Yeah, and that's the key, because I think a lot of people will look at this and go, yeah, hang on a second. If we look back at Theresa May's election and the shift that we saw and the loss of the lead that she had, particularly in the last two weeks heading into the election, then to your point, everything could change. The volatility and the switching that we're seeing right now for the British public is important here, too. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's no. You know, it's worth emphasising this is still pretty bad news for the Labour Party. And as things currently stand, the most likely outcome is this, this large Conservative majority. But there is still time for Labour to turn this around. And we, we, we say this point because they did such a good job at doing that in 2017. They went into that election campaign 24 points behind and they finished it pretty much catching up with the Tory party. Now, as things currently stand, they're 11 points behind in the polls. They're, you know, there's a big Conservative 68-seat majority on the current model, but there's 30 seats in that model where the Conservative lead over the Labour Party is less than 5%. Now, if everything starts to tighten over these remaining weeks, if Labour can start to close the gap, get that 11 points down to maybe six or seven, actually this turns from a race which currently looks like a comfortable win into a hung parliament. We're just going to have to continue tracking this over the coming weeks to see if that is the case. And we're also going to be rerunning this model later in the campaign to see if anything has changed. Where are the Conservatives pulling votes? 
votes from here. Do you see asymmetric risk in that it's tougher to see where the Conservatives garner more votes from here and perhaps easier, to your point, of, of Labour pulling them from somewhere? Because there's a double counting issue here. For everyone that the Conservatives lose, perhaps, to the Labour Party, it's, it narrows that lead that they have right now by two, effectively. One lost, one gain to Labour. Yeah, I mean, when we look at the vote shares in particular, the Conservative Party vote share is actually pretty much where it was in 2017. But the Labour Party vote share is down quite considerably. And they're down particularly in their leave seats um, across the Norths and the Midlands, what we call the red wall um, of Labour seats in, in, in fairly leave areas. That's where they're losing a lot of these seats to the Tories. And the, yeah, the Labour Party is losing votes in all directions in those seats. Uh, they're down from around 40% of the vote last election, just over 40% to 32 percent now and it, that means that the conservatives in those seats are coming through the middle and, and gaining places some seats they've never won before some seats labor have held consistently since 1922 and they're now losing to the tories yeah and the undecideds here are also going to be important chris great to have you on and we'll get you back chris curtis political research manager at yougov thank you for joining us on that all right coming up after the break it's in the name what you buy from luxury reseller the real real should be well real so when doubts emerged we paid a warehouse a visit in search of the real story stay with us that's coming up Welcome back to First Move. The online resale platform, The Real Real, sales says it offers second-hand luxury items like Chanel and Gucci at affordable prices. It was also one of the hot IPOs of the year, although the stock has cooled since then. I believe it's underwater. Now, the company fighting back on claims counterfeits are ending up on the site. Claire Sebastian has the inside scoop, has been inside the company and met with the CEO. Talk us through the operation to root out those fakes, Claire. Yeah, Julia, uh, we have seen this operation behind the scenes. It's pretty big. It looks pretty thorough from the outside. But as you say, this is a company, it was one of the hottest IPOs of the year, capitalizing on the fact that, uh, particularly as we head into the busiest shopping days of the year, people aren't just looking for new items. Luxury in particular is an area where resale is booming. It's growing much faster than the overall market. And the Real Real has really become one of the biggest players in this. It's a $1.5 billion uh, business now publicly listed. But they have now been facing claims recently. Recently, several investigations have shown uh, that their, their authentication processes are not foolproof. So we got behind the scenes and we checked out exactly how they're doing this. Leopard's hot this year. When you're selling luxury, one thing matters more than what's hot this year. Iconic luxury items from Louis Vuitton, Hermes, Gucci. All authenticated by our experts. Julie Wainwright turned that promise of genuine luxury at big discounts into a $1.5 billion, now publicly listed business, capitalizing on growing demand for more sustainable fashion and a huge untapped supply in people's closets. There's something like $200 billion trapped in people's homes in the U.S. Unlike a platform like eBay, the Real Real brings all the items into its warehouses, okay. photographs them, writes the listings, and most importantly, checks they're real. There's an expert behind every item. Yep. Now, recent investigations and complaints from fashion experts on social media casting doubt on that central promise. Shoe designer Amina Mawadi told us her team found this listing on The Real Real a couple of months ago for a shoe she says is markedly different from one she designed. 
She told us since she only has three collections to date, she feels the real real could have easily discovered this wasn't genuine. The real real told us they took down the listing and now use it as a training opportunity. Our processes are awesome. They're at, we authenticate every item. When you're coming into a brand that we are like with the real real and you're coming in as an entry level authenticator, your first step is 30 hours of training. But there's math, there's you know high risk and master authenticators all around you. This is an Hermes 25 centimeter Birkin in Togo leather. Kevin No is one of those high risk authenticators. Something I personally know about the Hermes font is that the P and the R should be exactly identical. Yeah. And you've learned all this from study of these bags over exactly. a number of years. Exactly. The real real doesn't typically involve the brands themselves in the authentication process. Hermes declined to comment for the story. One brand though did take a stand. Last year, Chanel sued the Real Real, claiming at least seven fake Chanel bags had turned up on the site. The complaint reads, only Chanel itself can know what is genuine Chanel. The case is still ongoing. I will say that Chanel has been consistently telling us prior to the lawsuit, they wanted us to go away. They said to my face, I was their worst nightmare. They don't believe in reselling goods. Chanel told us it would like to reassure its clients about the fact that they are, of course, completely free to resell, give or offer any item they've purchased at Chanel's. In a world where e-commerce provides ever more opportunities for counterfeiters, The Real Real says they are constantly updating their practices, both with staff training and AI tools. They now admit, though, it's never foolproof. But do you admit that there's still a possibility that something could turn up on this? Well... We're still humans, but I mean, you're asking me to say, do we have a 0.001%? Of course. Our job is to keep, be the safest place to transact, and we are. So, Julia, this company went public uh, on June 28th. It's fair to say that these questions around their processes, as thorough as they say they are, are costing them a bit of market value. The stock is now down some 12% from its $20 uh, IPO price. So they are trying to rebuild that trust by showing us inside uh, the operation. But look, as we're going into this holiday shopping season, it's not just luxury resale. E-commerce in general is always vulnerable to counterfeiters. And I think the message to consumers is when you're shopping online, be vigilant, take a look at all the details and know what you're buying. Couldn't agree more. Good job I didn't get that job, Claire. I don't think I'd ever have left. It's like heavenly. <laughs> Claire Sebastian, great job. Thank you so much for that and happy Thanksgiving. That just about wraps up the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. We'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.